Hello. So now, Graham, um, I, we touched last week, maybe the week before, uh, maybe last week, on the last dinner party. And um, we were doing this in relation, actually, to a different band. It was we brought it up when we were discussing English teacher, Leeds band, who we uh, um, talked about because they'd played at the mm. present in York. And we wondered about whether maybe that, they're, that, that, that they'd be just kind of blown away by the coverage for the last dinner party but that what goes with that pressure on the last dinner party is can they deliver this is this is all, already uh, winning uh, one of the brit awards the one for basically introducing one even before it's happened basically new album debut album came out on friday of this last week can't remember its title and maybe you can tell me that but i do think you've interestingly asked oh, yes. a question here how unfairly maligned um the last dinner party are uh, this debut album that's just come out and you make the point, and I think this is a really good call from the tracks that I've heard by playing uh, on Spotify, 1970s Queen and ABBA with 21st century attitudes. I think that's a really good summary of the album, Graham. And is that perhaps actually one of the things that's rather appealing about them? They're a strange bunch. It, it is very appealing. And I would say that I'll do like a guitar band led mm. by a female singer. The five, five female strong last dinner party are even more musically interesting and rich than English teacher. And that's yes. what makes them straight away more interesting in, say, dry cleaning or yeah. sprints or a few other yeah. scratchy guitar bands that have their mm -hmm. moments, like Baritalia, but musically are a bit like, uh, a little bit like eating muesli without any milk. <laughs> and the last dinner party are like eating muesli with dollops of honey and cream and chocolate and raspberry to the point where you can't even find where the muesli is. It's it's so rich and fruity. And so it's a, it's a much more heady musical sensation by five women who usually dress in long... That sounds more like a long... Florentine, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they usually dress in long, floaty, white dresses. Yes. They're full of life and effervescent energy. And the album itself... Re re repeats their live performance in a very, very strong sonic fashion. And as you said, with elements of Mid-1970s Queen and ABBA, a bit of sparks, little bits, of minor bits of Kate Bush, bits of orchestration, bits of grand piano, bits of choral work and harmonies, but fundamentally a good old-fashioned mid-70s strong rock pop band, but with lyrics that only a 21st century woman could write, a man couldn't have written this album. It's, it's a very feminine album, mm. which is great. Not knocking it. And it's also, they're interesting bunch because the album's called Prelude to Ecstasy. Prelude to Ecstasy. Now that sounds a bit like Steely Dan's 1973 album, Countdown to Ecstasy. And you might think, well, there's no way this young group of women from London who only formed in 2021, i.e. just over two years ago, there's no way they, they, they know about Steely Dan that's well before their time. But mm. they do actually see themselves, they're influenced by David Bowie and Kate Bush. So perhaps they do actually know Steely There's a link between Steely and Count Dantexy. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's worth a guess. And, I mean, that's ambitious targeting to be up there with David Bowie and Kate Bush, the 
male and female most influential musicians uh, of the last 50 years in, in British pop and rock music. The incidentally, the last dinner party are playing Leeds next Sunday, Graham. Mm. Uh, the Leeds Brudenell Social Club, which is one of those ones that presumably before all the furore would be happening, uh, had already been booked. That's sold out, of course. And then they're coming back mm. to Leeds, Leeds O2 Academy. And that is going to be in September, 24th of September. So a couple of gigs, actually, for the last dinner party. You may have to um, for go a single last dinner party and just have a dinner party instead um, for Leeds Brudenell Social. But obviously, there's still time to get tickets for the O2 Academy gig on the 24th of September. Uh, also, I guess, Graham, they produced arguably, I mean, Wet Leg probably had the most memorable single of 2022. And I think it's fair to say that Last Dinner Party's song, I won't, um, of course, uh, mention the, um, well, it sounds rather um, uh, prudish to refer to, uh, you know, the rude the rude word, the rude word that's in the amazing, <laughs> amazingly catchy chorus. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that I mean, that's one of the things that straight away caught your attention. Like nothing matters. Yeah, that's what it is. Then I will fudge you like nothing matters. Is the, is the main line of course. Well, fudge, it's, fudge it's, you, it's, Graham. Fudge you. I will fudge yeah, you. Yeah. I will fudge. I will fudge the issue. But yeah, well, it, it sort of sits. The, the lyrics sit easily with the cover because it's a very grandiose album sleeve. They're all dressed like they're in a Victorian bordello or mm. something from that drama on TV years ago called Tipping the Velvet. All in like you know corsets. And, yeah. Yeah. Basques and you know all looking a little bit pre-Raphaelite, really. So it's all very romantic and very. Heavy. So that could be a nineteen. In, that could be a nineteen seventies album sleeve, couldn't it? Early seventies album sleeve. It, it it could actually, yeah. I think it's just why they've had a bit of a backlash in some mm. sectors of the music press about their so almost instant rise to fame, because I think that they are so feminine and so fearlessly unembarrassed about being a bit. Uh, baroque and bit prog mm. and a bit and very feminine they're 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 not they're not trying to tick any cool boxes like they're not like trying to fit any genres that are already popular or that are already cool they're just fearlessly going out there in in you know giving it big and i think that's got them on island records and it got them playing their own stones and it got them the brit award but it's also got them some people you know how cool the music press is they always yeah. want to look like they're cool. So they, they, they've been accused of being industry plants, like they've been like developed by Island Records in, in an yeah. industry hothouse, or like a, or put together like a K-pop band. And I think that's just sour grapes because you know it, the music industry has always had an element of of manufacture, even amongst some of the world's most critical acclaimed groups. There's still industry involved, and also the, I, I the monkeys I industry. Yeah, but beyond that, you know, most famous albums have musicians from other bands playing. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Session. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No one said that Frankie Solder were a manufactured band, but if you saw them play live, it was very different to the Trevor Horn produced experience. <laughs> well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to risk, I'm not going to risk libel, but I, when I yeah. went to see Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the rumour goes that there were, shall we say, additional musicians off stage supplementing the sound. Would that be the polite way of putting it? Now, that, as I say, I am not seeking to be in any way sued or whatever. I have mm. no proof of this, but it was the talk of the gig at the, on the night that this was the case. Ah. I merely mentioned that. Um, and as I say, I am not seeking any challenge legally to that situation because I merely watched a band performing on stage. I've absolutely no idea about this rumour that there were 
further musicians um, um, elsewhere, mm -hmm. and I wish not to comment on it. But in that sense of being manufactured, that used to get thrown at them. <laughs> You've certainly covered your bottom there, Charles. I have, you're, I have tried, Graham, desperately, because I'm aware that, you know, what I'm suggesting, mm. um, you know, has a foundation of risk in it. But there's a certain element of, of when actually something seems to have arrived in such a complete and satisfying form, people tend to think, oh, there must be something behind it that's not just them. There must be someone that's come up with this. It, the Sven Gali character, the, the Malcolm McLaren character that leads to some way of being with a band like Bow Wow Wow, for example, let alone the Sex Pistols, that somehow a Svengali has been involved and uh, and achieved what's been achieved. Yet actually, by the sounds of this, I think this has been really well thought out by the musicians involved. The look, the album sleeve, the very arresting, very memorable first single, both lyrically and musically. These are things that have come, it seems to me, from the band themselves by looking, if you like, at the history of music um, and how to make an instant impact. And yes, you can say that can be done uh, in, in ways that's manufactured. The obvious example when it comes to uh, girl groups would be Spice Girls. Um, but that's this is not the comparison that you can make with the Spice Girls. Uh, that that was deliberately manufactured. That was put together. They're a proper group. I mean, I looked at yeah. the, the sleeve notes to the album, yeah. and three three of the songs have a minor co-write from what seems to be the engineer of the album, yeah. Jimmy Robertson. Yeah. But every other song is purely the band themselves. All the instruments, i.e. the guitars and bass and drums and vocals, are all the band themselves. Mm. I don't think they're a manufactured band, and I think it's a really good album, but I can see why, they're, why they've had some flag. And I'm also not entirely convinced that doing what they're doing is going to end up with them being a huge band because Wet Leg, whilst being very poppy, dress in a very sort of down-to-earth yes. fashion. You know, feminine but not too feminine, a bit yeah. indie-looking but not too indie-looking. But if you think about it, basically, the last dinner party looked like Bat, Bat for Lashes but sounded like yeah. Queen. That alone as a phrase is not the sort of description of something which sells lots of records in Britain. So as a marketing, as a marketing a huge pitch, that ain't going to work. Well, it might do, and I certainly hope it does, but there's there's also an element of the darkness about them, and I don't mean darkness as like, you know, shadow and shade in brooding mm. clouds, but the band, mm. the darkness, who were a very 70s hard yes. rock band, but very, very fruity, <clears throat> very melodramatic, who were instantly successful because they're, they're a bit like eating, you know, a really great slice of cake you love it straight away but the darkness because they were so fruity and they were so flamboyant and they didn't have freddie mercury's lead singer in no. uh, the last dinner party they quite quickly got regarded by the general world and the media world and the world of critics as a bit of a joke so i'm slightly worried the last dinner party by being so pre-raphaelite Mm. And by being so instantly likable, because the songs are strong songs with strong melodies, mm. may end up accidentally in the same camp. I hope they don't. But I also remember the Claxons won the American Prize in the noughties. Yes. And they were yeah. also instantly likable, a bit over the top, musically flamboyant. And they went from being heroes to zeros quite quickly. So I'm hoping the last time party avoid that pitfall. <laughs> I, I what usually the, comes I after the last dinner, yeah. Graham? What usually comes after the last dinner party in life? Uh, going to bed. 
Okay, so there's that's the next album, Going to Bed. Now, that's not <laughs> particularly a strong prospect, I think. Now, you tell me, album. Charles, what comes next? <laughs> Snoring loudly on the sofa these days, I think, Graham. That's what comes next mm. these days. Anyway, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting... That isn't a, I, you can see that risk. You can see that mm. risk, absolutely. Um, and with The Darkness, actually, is a very good call because the, the, although they had the big Christmas hit single, there was a sense that... Um, one trick pony to some extent and that it could never be repeated and and sometimes i mean i'd even say meatloaf although some people might say that's you know but meatloaf had one great album and that was so out there so distinctive yeah but that was that was male melodramatics and it, it was very it was very masculine i mean meatloaf uh -huh. although he was really over the top was a very very macho type bloke yeah the darkness weren't the darkness weren't macho and, no. <laughs> and the last dinner parties certainly aren't macho. So, no, they're so not. Good, good, fair point, Graham. I withdraw. I withdraw the meatloaf comparison. That's a slice for another day. Now, Graham, I haven't seen this film, but I am very curious about this film called Zone of Interest. Now, this is a film about Auschwitz, and of course, at the moment we are in very sensitive times over uh, anti-Semitic issues. Um, here's a film uh, by Jonathan Glazer, not Zone of Interest. And you're saying it's only part of a new wave of provocative directors working in the new cinema of satirical superrealism. Um, I've got it out, by the way. No, no one else has written about. No one else has written about satirical superrealism. I've made that phrase up to describe. It's a winner, Graham. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's um it's like your the, the, the artistic writers. pitch that you came up with um, to describe uh, the last dinner party. The comparisons you made there. What, by the way, I think we should actually ask, first of all, what is satirical super-realism? Well, what you have is something that looks real in the first place and deals with real subjects and real topics of either current or historical nature and interest. But although it looks real, the photography and the way it's directed is almost like heightened reality. It's like really colourful and really clear and really in your face. It's not like there's not lots of shadows and lots of shade or darkness. It's like bright. It's right in your face. And that applies to directors. Jonathan Glazer in particular also applies to uh, Ruben Ostland, who made uh, Triangle of Sadness and Force Majeure. Yeah. It yeah. sort of applies to the, the, the great, great director, Yorgos Lanthimos, who made Poor Things and The Favourite and mm. Lobster. And yeah. it, it sort of applies to Peter Strickland, the British director who made yes. uh, yeah. uh, quite a lot of Ben Whitney's works like that. Yeah. And, and, the, and the whole bunch of them, what links them apart from the, the direction, the look, <clears throat> and the surrealism comes not just from the way it's right in your face and it's bright and it's colourful and it's real, but over the top real. It's mm. also slightly hallucinatory. There's also slight, slight, something slightly offbeat about its reality visually. Mm which marries well with the story because those directors specialise in stories which appear to be about real things. But actually, when you think about it afterwards, they're, they're semi-satirical and also they're not totally believable because you think it about the story logically. It, it, it doesn't quite stack up. The, the films are there to make a point. Yeah. They're not there to just describe reality. And Zone of Interest is probably the peak of all these films because it deals with one of the world's most horrific and rightly sensitive subjects you could possibly deal with. And it mm -hmm. manages to approach the terrible, terrible Holocaust 
and Auschwitz mm. in that style of satirical surrealism, but without in any way being disrespectful to the subject or to real people or real history. It's, 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 it's not an easy film to watch. It's, it's a horror movie where you never see the horror, but you know the horror's there. And it's, it's an uncomfortable watch, but it's an absolutely brilliant film. Where um, does the, the satire feed into it in, in that it's such a painful subject as the lowest of, in the 20th century? There, there's, uh, you cannot think of anything more degrading of humanity than what was committed uh, in that Holocaust at uh, Auschwitz. So how can you bring um, a satirical edge to such a story? Well, if you were going to describe it in one line, in a very flippant and insensitive manner, the, the, the film by Jonathan Glaze is based partly on Martin Emissey's book. But also, he, he read the story of the real camp commandant at Auschwitz, who lived in a nice big house just beyond the camp wall with his family, whilst all this horrific stuff was happening that he was in charge of. You could describe it as the everyday story of a well-organized, ambitious man mm. who just happened yeah. to be killing hundreds of thousands of people for no reason whatsoever, except a reason beyond any logic whatsoever. And that's what it is. So they, they, live a, they try and live an ordinary life. They're well-organized. They've got good middle-class values. They're very tidy. He's very hardworking. He takes his job very seriously. You can see where I'm going just by just by seeing this already. It's 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 already yeah. bizarre. And all the got you've got his wife sitting around with their themes, having coffee and cake in their house. Mm. But then they're then they're talking about clothes and getting their hands on nice fur coats. And without them actually saying that these fur coats and clothes are from the victims just over the wall. In the camp, that's what they're talking about. And they're, 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 the scenes portrayed realistically like a small group of WI members talking about fashion, but they're not. They're talking about people who've been killed just yeah. across the world. And the whole film yeah. plays like that. The whole film doesn't tell you what to think. It doesn't describe. It doesn't lead you on to a conclusion. It simply portrays the family, the way them, they themselves would have seen themselves. But their behaviour, and they don't even seem to be totally aware of it, their behaviour is utterly evil and utterly incomprehensible. And he lets the audience work that out for themselves. So it's, it's an incredible film. That title, Zone of Interest, I mean, you mentioned Martin Amis. Was that a Martin Amis title that he's just used, or did he come well, up in, with this In uh, my research, not volatile. In my research, I did not bother to read the book, mm. uh, mainly because it's only loosely based on the Martin Amos book. It's more based on the real story of, I think he was called Hoss, who was the commandant yeah. of the camp at mm. Auschwitz, who was, who was later hung in 1947 after the war. Mm. Deservedly so, obviously. And uh, supposedly, John Glazer went to a great deal of trouble to portray the house and the garden and their family and how they behaved in the way that actually happened from from historical record, as opposed to like creating a drama and yeah. squeezing in some historical facts. He's played it straight. He's taken how they behaved like it was normal, 
But by showing you how they behaved, you can see it's very, very far from mm. being normal. It's, it's an amazingly successful approach. And it also puts you on the spot. Because as, as an audience member, because the commandant, apart from his evil ways, is a hardworking chap, he, he's always striving to be the, the best boss you can possibly be. Yeah. And, and you find yourself against your own, your own better instincts, almost rooting for him to get promoted. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's mm. working so hard, he's going to get promotion mm. with the boss, but the boss mm. turns out to be Hitler. So, so, so it, yeah. it makes you complicit in the events. It makes you exactly. realise that these weren't, these weren't people unlike you and me. They just happened to be in a different set of circumstances, in a different time in history, with different leaders, it shows you that people's bad behaviour is innately human. It's not like some, you know, one-off aberration that could never happen again. This could yeah. happen again at any point in, at the wrong time, in the wrong place. Without telling you that, it doesn't, none, none of the lines I'm saying ever appear in the film. The film doesn't tell you anything. That's why it's so good. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast, Two Big Egos in a Small Car. Your hosts were Graham Chalmers and Charles Hutchinson. This was a Baltic sub-production.